And the third kudos, um, because I'm going to turn this over in a second, is um, is to Dr. Shubkin for inviting the speaker. Dr. Shubkin, many of you probably know, if you haven't already learned, um, is a bona fide um, pediatric bioethicist, having completed a certificate program this past year and a half, ac academic year, drawing the ranks of Dr. Ringer and Dr. Leahy and others. So she will have the privilege, although I sprang it on her 15 minutes ago, of introducing Dr. Brasco, who she invited, again, with thanks to uh, the, the Dartmouth Ethics Institute and the Clinical Ethics Committee here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for co-sponsoring uh, today's event. Thank you, Dr. Leahy. So with all that, Dr. Shubkin. Thank you. Thanks, Keith, um, for the honor of presenting Dr. Brasco today. Again, I'm really honored, and thank to Dr. White, who suggested this last year to bring Dr. Brasco here, um, and to Steve Chapman, who was a med school classmate of his um, back in the day at Penn. Um, so again, thanks to Dr. Leahy um, and to the Dartmouth Ethics Institute. This is our 23rd year co-sponsoring um, a pediatric annual pediatric bioethics lecture. Um, Dr. Brasco, we had a lovely faculty dinner last night. He joins us for grand rounds. He'll be meeting with some members of our department and then running resident case conference this afternoon at noon um, in L5A for those who are interested in joining. And it should be a fascinating one with the intersection of newborn screening and public policy and ethics. So it should be a fascinating talk. Dr. Brasco comes to us from Miami. He, had his MD, he got his MD and PhD in history at University of Pennsylvania followed by residency in Jackson. Um, he has a developmental behavioral pediatrician um, who was trained at the Mailman Center at the University of Miami. He's currently chair of the Clinical Ethics Committee, um, and his research interest has really been in newborn screening um, and the ethics of disability. Um, in July, he has a new job for which I understand he has a lot of meetings to attend. He is now the deputy, I'm going to get this title wrong though, Deputy Secretary of the Children's Medical Services for the State of Florida. Um, so he really is taking on a lar large public policy role um, in the state of Florida for which he should be commended. And with that, I will turn it over and look forward to his talk. Thank you. Oh, wow. And can it be a little less dark than that? Yeah. The slides are not so important. Can we look at this a little bit? All right. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much, Kathy. Thank you, everyone, for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be able to be here. Um, before I can start, though, I need to know a little bit more about you. Um, among the folks here, are there medical students, nursing students, people who are still the early part of their training? Okay. Um, residents? Fellows, raise your hand enough so I can actually see. Residents are in the background. Residents in the background. <laughs> they're moving up. No, I saw some here. This is moving up. Great. Um, clinicians, doctors, nurses, social workers, most, a lot of people here are clinicians. Um, people who do ethics kind of as part of their professional life. So a few of you around. Okay. Did I, and, and we have some guests. Did I leave anyone out? Any important groups? Okay. I got a sense. So as you heard, I'm a, I'm a pediatrician. First and foremost, I'm a pediatrician. And I still do general pediatrics. Um, and I also have some training in history. So I approach, um, well, this, it turns out that if you do history and you're on a medical campus, then people see you as an ethicist. Right? Because there's only room for one sort of social science humanities category on a medical campus, and that's <laughs> ethics. So whether you're trained in philosophy or anthropology or history, doesn't really matter. So you kind of end up doing ethics just because that's who you are. Um, and when I was thinking about what I was going to do today, what, what I really wanted to do is just a series of cases. So we're going to start with very simple cases and work our way up through a couple of more, more difficult ones. 
Um, and the problem is, though, when you're asked what your title is going to be, it's usually months before you come to give a talk. And so this, you know, this is a fancy title. But in fact, if I had a more honest title, it would be something like an interactive discussion of some routine ethics issues and how you might communicate with families leading up to brief discussion of Charlie Gard, the fellow angel, with some history and very little philosophy mixed in. <laughs> so this is what we're going to do. Um, very important disclosure. So you heard all the various different employment things that I do, um, and two in particular for the state of Florida and also for the um, advisory committee for hereditary diseases of newborns and children. That's the ATCH-DNC. What we're talking about today and everything I say is just Jeff talking, okay? I'm not representing the state of Florida, not representing the federal government. This is just me. Everyone agree? <laughs> Good. Um, Recorded. I know it's being recorded, <laughs> but I'm not talking about any federal or state policy issues. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so here's your first case. Healthy two-year-old, several days of upper respiratory symptoms, has fever, left ear pain, physical exam is consistent with otitis media, so we think this is an otitis media case, no previous um, episodes, um, home with a maternal grandmother who's healthy, so this is supposed to be the the epitome of a garden variety of Titus media question, okay? So imagine that you can change the facts if you want to make it that case. The question is, use a clinician, A, prescribe an robotic, watchful waiting, safety net, or let the family decide. And you're going to vote, okay? I have a series of things you have to vote on. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands because we don't have a, uh, another way of doing this. If you don't raise your hand, if you don't vote, I will call you out. You say you must vote publicly. So this is your chance. How many say A, I would prescribe an antibiotic for this child? All right? B, watchful waiting. C, safety net prescription. D, let the family decide. All right. So we may have some debate about this, but the correct answer absolutely positively is <laughs> let the family decide. And we're going to talk this through, right? If we can make it through this case, I think we'll be okay with the others. Um, when I'm trying to teach this to the medical students and residents, I often say in these sorts of cases, if this were your, your child, your actual child, would you want to have a say in whether your child got antibiotics or not? What do you think? So if this were your kid, would you want to have a say in what the physician said we're going to do? Well, yeah, because if someone tried to prescribe me an antibiotic, I think they were up on the most recent. Yeah, so yes, now, you're just using your medical knowledge. You have to be careful here. Let's just assume you're a normal human being, right? You have no special knowledge, and you're just a parent. Would you want to have a say in what medical decision gets made for your child? Yeah. Okay. Agreed. We're going to get to that. But by and large, you know, you probably do want to have a say in that. And what do we call this, by the way? What's the fancy term for this? Chair decision making, right? We're in, this is actually one of the homes, right? Dartmouth is one of the homes of the research on shared decision making and understanding how it works. Um, a lot more research in adults than there is in children. But we know that this is the right thing to do. And there was a recent paper, came out perfectly just this few months ago, on shared decision-making and children with disabilities in 2017. AAP clinical report, right? Tells us exactly what to do. It's perfect. You don't even need me to come. <laughs> Turns out it's trickier than that, right? So here's the sort of standard definition of shared decision-making, at least two parties, information exchanged, everyone's aware of the treatment options, all bring their knowledge and values. Sounds great, right? And here's the specific definition they use. Um, interactive process, patients and physicians simultaneously participate in all phases of the decision-making process. I underline that. Because I actually don't think that's right. And I'm going to use my good friend Chris Futner's framework for doing this. So Chris is a friend of mine who thinks of great things, and then I steal them and use them in talks. It really works out well for me. 
And I'll show you a diagram of this in a minute. But what Chris talks about is actually there are stages in decision making. And really importantly, there are different roles for different people at the different stages. And I think you'll see as we get into the harder cases, I mean, phototitis media is pretty straightforward. But for the harder cases, it can be really useful to separate this out. So what's the first step? The first step is detecting and assessing. What's the problem? And actually, we can solve a lot of our clinical problems by understanding that different people have different perspectives. So is otitis media, is that a viral and or bacterial infection of the middle ear that sometimes responds to antibiotics but usually gets better on its own? Or is it that my kid is staying up all night and I can't sleep, and if I miss work another day, I'm going to be fired, so I need this fixed? Right? So different people may have different perspectives on what the exact problem is. And then, so the next step is informing. Well, what are the, what's the range of appropriate options? What could we do? And I kind of laid them out for you in the first question. Yes, watchful waiting is appropriate. Um, safety net prescription, starting an antibiotic right away. All those sort of fit into the range of medically acceptably and community <coughs> acceptable approaches. And we'll spend a lot more time in the second step, informing. And who does the informing part? Well, this is really where evidence-based medicine and the community and society at large fit in. What's the range of things that are okay to do? When it comes down to recommending what are we going to do in this particular situation, there's where sort of the shared decision-making comes in. Families have their ideas, clinicians have their ideas, and together there's a set of recommendations. What you actually offer in that particular circumstance is not the family or the clinician necessarily, though. It might be, well, does our institution do that procedure? Or are you better off getting it somewhere else? Or do I, as a clinician, say, I think it's unethical to do this, so I can't offer it, but someone else will. And then the last part is the family that actually chooses among those range of acceptable options. So if you want to look at this graphically, and I'll show you this a few more times, and this comes from Chris's paper on the ethics in the midst of therapeutic evolution. If you come to that, what's the problem? It's mostly patients and clinicians, although because of newborn screening and other stuff, sometimes we're doing a lot of screening and detecting problems elsewhere. The informing is community or society. It's not the clinician, it's not the family, saying what's the range of acceptable options. When it comes to recommendation, we're back with the clinician and patients. But whether we offer it, again, is much here. And then it's the family that decides. Okay? But we'll come back to this, and hopefully you'll see its value as we get into the harder cases. So I'm going to come back to this. In the uncomplicated Titus Media, there's a lot of debate among clinicians, right? What's the latest research say? What's the exact right approach? Um, the number needed to treat the last time I saw the research was 11. That is, you'd have to give 11 prescriptions to children with otitis media in order for one to feel better. You know, fever goes away sooner, less ear pain or something. So whether you treat that or not, I would say there's two reasonable options, antibiotics or none. So we should offer both those things. So what would you say to the family in this case? You're the clinician. If we had more time or this is a workshop, I'd actually have you talk to each other and try it out. But just think for a second. There's a family in front of you, and you want to give them the option of antibiotics or not. <clears throat> All right, you got it? So here's my suggestion. And at the end, I'm going to show you some of the research on communication. <clears throat> Explain the risks, benefits, alternatives, what we all do already. Here are the side effects. Here's the possible benefits. And then this formulation I found very useful. And it's something like this. Some families hearing this information will say, antibiotics, if there's any chance that'll help, I want to do it. Other families will say, you know what, I really don't like to do antibiotics, and I, I really have to. So if I can get away with not doing it, I prefer not to. And other families would say, Dr. Brosko, you're the doctor. 
You're the one who should decide this. So notice what I've done, right? I've done some and other. So I've made two sets of things acceptable decisions, right? And in case of the family, as you pointed out, they want me to decide because I'm the expert. I'm not saying you must decide. So I'm not saying, do you want antibiotics for your kid or not? Right? And there was a perfect example that's just on Monday. I still have to see General Pete's patients on Monday. And it was a nine-month-old baby, beautiful baby, wonderful. Everything's going great. But he got a bug bite three days before. And if you've never been to South Florida, you don't know what Florida stores are. And the, the dad showed me the picture, right? And the picture of this foot was huge. It was swollen. It was ugly. And so the ER doc, not inappropriately, said this could be staph or strep. I'm starting clindamycin. So now the child comes back three days later, and the foot looks great. But the child's had fever for three days. He also has some upper respiratory symptoms. So is it that the clindamycin fixed the foot but didn't touch the fever? Or is it the foot got better because it was just an allergic reaction and he has fever because of an upper respiratory infection? And it's one of those clinical things where you, there's no right answer. They didn't do a, a culture. I don't know whether he needs to continue. And the parents say, should we continue the antibiotics? That's their question. That's why they're there. So what's the first thing I did? I'm there with the dad. First thing I did was get mom on the phone. <laughs> so I will tell you that in my household, I have four children. If one of them gets sick, my wife will say, should we call the pediatrician? And I'll say, I'm a pediatrician. <laughs> should we call a real doctor? Right? I can get out my board certification. It does not matter. Right? So I've learned if the dad's there, we always call the mom. The dad's usually happy to do that because it saves them later on. <laughs> so we've got mom on the phone, dad on the phone, and I do my thing. You know, some people would say yes, and some, some families say no. Someone, and the dad and the mom both say, we really hate giving our kid antibiotics. We think it's the wrong thing to do. He's so young. If there's any chance we don't have to do that, let's not do that. Right? So then my note says, discuss with family the risks and benefits. We've agreed that it's almost certainly this is an allergic reaction, um, and the fever is related to the upper respiratory infection, so we're going to stop antibiotics. They're going to watch carefully. And if it changes, they're going to call me and restart. So I would say that's probably the best clinical outcome you could get, and you know in almost every single clinical encounter you have, there's some uncertainty about what to do. And so including the family in the decision usually makes sense. All right. So we're good on that. Um, all right. Next case or version of that. The family says, actually, this is the response. I don't know. What would you do if this was your child? How many people have had that question before? Okay. So is the, now raise your hands. Is the correct answer? Give a truthful answer about your child. Anyone goes to that? A couple. All right. Point out that this is not your kid. How many would do that? One or two. Um, interpret this as a way of asking your opinion. They really, they're not asking about your kid. They're really asking you about their kid. Okay. And last, tell them what you do is irrelevant. <laughs> that is the right answer. Why is that the right answer? You're going to say it nicely, of course. I'll show you how in a minute. <laughs> because my values are different from yours. You're the parent. It's your values that matter. Right? If what we're talking about in the final decision should match the values of the patient, the family, then what I would do for my kid is totally irrelevant. Now, yes, there is a part of this that says, are you, doctor, emotionally involved? Are you connected? Do you care? Right? So the way I get around this is I say, well, I'm the sort of person that I don't worry about anything, so I would not use antibiotics in this case. My wife, on the other hand, if there's any chance antibiotics might help, she wants to give them. And you might be like me, you might be like my wife, you might have a completely separate set of ideas. 
So what do you think? So now what have I done? I haven't blown them off completely. Yes, I'm, this is what I would really, by the way, this is true, so it works out very well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm engaging them and telling them what I would do, but I'm also trying to then do this jujitsu thing and get them back to, who are you? Where are your values? What matters to you? Right? Okay. Case two, fairly similar. Healthy two-year-old, several days of upper respiratory symptoms, now with fever, physical exams normal, home of the grandmother, fully immunized. So this is a kid with a cold. Parent says, I really think he needs antibiotics. I gotta get back to work. Has this ever happened to anyone here? <laughs> All right, so you know this case, yes? yes? So what's the first thing you say? Sure, I'll write your prescription, here it is. <laughs> B, let's see what's going on. C, antibiotics have side effects. Let's make sure that's the right thing to do. Or D, what's your concern? Why antibiotics? All right, A, anyone for A? B, let's see what's going on. C, antibiotics have side effects. D. All right. The trick to this is what's the first thing you say? Oh. Start with yes. Ooh. Listen. <laughs> Can't we get a real? So here's what I say. Whenever I get a request, the first thing I say, sure. I have no problem writing a prescription for Let's go see what's going on. And we do the history. Okay. Do the physical exam. His lungs sound clear. No signs of pneumonia. That's great. His ears are perfect. These are the best ears I've seen all day. Throat looks good. You know what? This is a viral infection. This is great news. Your kid's going to get better. Strong, healthy guys like him, they do great. The problem with antibiotics is they have lots of side effects. And so I think that that's not the right thing to do. What we want is for him to be healthy. And the best way for him to be healthy is to make sure he gets plenty of fluids, give him Tylenol as fever. Right? When you start with yes, when the first thing you say is yes, what happens in your relationship with someone? Right away, it's like, okay, he said yes. If the first thing you say is any version of no, well, let's see what's going on, let's figure this out, tell me why. If it's any version of no, then right away it's this. We're against each other. So I say start with yes. Now, I do think it's often a good idea at the end to get to why. And I love this phrase, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Because it's just such an easy way to hear more. Any house officer hears on like the morning after call, and they say, why did you start antibiotics? That always sounds a little bit like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Right? Whereas if you say, if the attending says, tell me more about you know, what you did last night, it gives them a chance to say, well, here's what I was thinking. So tell me more. And why do you ask this? Well, if the family says, you know, his cousin had otitis media and then got mastoiditis and then he died because of a horrible abscess, you're going to treat that much differently than if the family says, well, ever since the aliens implanted the electrodes in my head, I know <laughs> who needs antibodies and who doesn't. Right? It's going to lead you again in very different directions. So understanding that is part of it. So all those answers are correct that you guys said. But I would start with yes. Yes, ma'am. Um, doesn't that strike you somewhat as dishonest, though, to say yes when you know you're not going to say yes? To How do I know I'm not going to say yes? He could have otitis media. Well, in the description, he had a normal exam. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Lee Worley, who was my great mentor in pediatrics, said you can't be a great preacher or a great doctor or a great nurse if you can't tell a story. What we're always doing is communicating what we're thinking. 
And you need to communicate in such a way that you're most likely to get people to understand you and buy in. Um, there are so many different ways you could say things, right, that are the same thing. Um, I see a kid, or, you know, are there um, medicines for autism, right? Families want to know if there are medicines for autism. Or do you know what causes autism? And the answer to that question is what? No. And if you start with saying no, then what does the family hear? They just hear no. If you start with, we're doing so much research to figure out what's going on with autism, and we're beginning to understand some of these things, but we're still not quite there. Or there are several medications that can be very helpful for the hyperactivity, depression, and so on in autism. We don't really have a medicine that fixes it. I've just said no. But I've said no in a way that afterwards the family feels like, okay, these guys know what they're doing. We're headed in the right direction. I feel like I'm able to do the right thing. And most of the time when I'm saying yes, they ask for antibiotics long before I've done the physical exam. So usually there is some uncertainty. Um, but again, I think that the research on communication is, you know, I want you to transfer my child. Of course, we have no problem transferring your child. Let's figure out how we do this. Now, they might have to repeat some of the lab tests when they get there. And we may lose some time in figuring out what's going on with your child. And, and then you can go into those things. By the way, this is the thing that works the best with teenagers, too. <laughs> Did you have teenagers? You know, I want to shave my head. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Shaving your head, I bet you'd look great. You know, I wonder, what would, your, what would your friends say? And, you know, would you be able to... And then you start going through the reasons why that might not be a good idea. But starting with yes is usually a good communication starter. How's that? <laughs> I have to say, Jeff has evolved infectious disease. All right. This is so triggering. <laughs> We've got the trigger warnings. I apologize. <laughs> All right. So one key ethics thing here is the difference between requests and refusals, right? So requests, I want antibiotics. I want whatever it is. There's no obligation to the clinician to have to do that. Now, it's important to remember, and Steve and I were talking about this before, that part of what's going on here with a request is about our medical professional integrity, right? So when families ask us for things, we sometimes you have to admit this, or at least I have to admit it, that part of it's the emotional response. I'm the doctor. I'm the one who will decide, right? And for centuries, for millennia, really, the, the core values um, of the physician, of the person, were really how we did ethics, right? If you were a good person and made good decisions, that was sort of the basis of ethics. Now we're moved into ethics committees and a whole set of things. Um, so I think sometimes that's why I'm, it, it's hard for me to say yes first. But I know I need to do that to build a relationship. Um, so this request. And now refusals, we're not going to spend too much time on this because hopefully you know their basic ethics. But if someone's informed and they're not coerced and they have the capacity to make the decision, then they can refuse. And with adults, it's pretty straightforward. Even if it's life-saving care, adults in the United States can say no, and that's it. You're done. With kids, it's a little trickier. And we're going to get into some of those cases in a minute because parents are deciding for kids. And so there's always the issue of medical neglect. All right, so here's the third case. So this is Lewis, or Louis, actually. Um, and this is a case we had in about five years ago after the earthquake in Haiti. Crush injury to his right foot. Um, he's transferred to our hospital. And um, our infectious disease folks tell us, look, we've tried antibiotics, we've tried this, we've tried that. It's time to amputate. It's going to be a below-the-knee amputation, and he's going to do fine. Because guys like him, they're running, they're playing basketball. This is the best thing we could do for him. And the father says no. And what he says is some version of, I don't want to cripple for a son. So 
Is this a valid refusal? So dad clearly understands and appreciates what's going on. We explain it to him. He's able to you know, tell us back, yes, I know you're saying if we don't do this, then he's going to lose his leg, he could die. Dad seems to have the capacity. He's able to explain things. <coughs> it's voluntary. So why not respect the dad's decision? It's not the best interest of the child. Okay. What else others think? I'm sorry? The child could die. The child could die. Are any of you bothered by the dad's reason? So if not, then let's spend the next five or ten minutes um, talking about the history of people with disabilities. Okay? Um, Because I think it's important to understand the way I and many of us reacted to this idea of he's going to be a cripple. Right? That's sort of old-time thinking. Um, There is this long negative history. Right? There's a strong positive, so we spend most of the time on that, of what's happened to people with disabilities throughout time. Um, which hunts happened fairly near here, right, in the United States, in Salem, Massachusetts. For centuries, any calamity that happened in a town was usually blamed on people with disabilities. So if you were physically or mentally different from those around you, that meant that you were almost certainly possessed by the devil and it's your fault that plague came to town. So hundreds of thousands of people were hanged, burned at the stake because they were different. Throughout most history, if you had a disability, you couldn't own land, sign a deed, you couldn't participate in everyday life very much in many parts of the world. In the 20th century, probably all of you know, we had sterilization programs in the United States, most of Europe. And of course, the Nazis perfected their gas-killing machines on people with disabilities first. So... One of the important things to understand is that there's this long, scary history for people with disabilities who, and most people in the United States with disabilities know about this history. Um, It's also fairly recently that medical neglect kind of disappeared, right, up through the 1970s. If a child was born with Down syndrome and had duodenal atresia, easy to fix, we'd say, no, it's better to let him die. He has Down syndrome. What life could he possibly have? It's, It's hard to imagine in some ways that we would, that that was just 30 or 40 years ago that we think that way about a kid with Down syndrome. And there still is this sort of medical model that far too many physicians, nurses, other clinicians sort of see disability something that needs to be fixed. Oh, he, if he has a disability, we need to fix it. And we had a discussion last night at dinner about how many people with disabilities take pride, right? So there's deaf culture. I'm a linguistic minority. I'm not suffering from a problem. Um, people with Asperger's call themselves Aspies. People in wheelchairs, many of them call themselves crips, right? They see the world very differently. And disabilities become part of their identity. And this started really with parents. In the 1930s and 40s, parents started advocating for the kids with disabilities and saying he should be able to go to school. He should be part of the playground. And then there's some famous families, Pearl Buck and Roy Rogers and the Kennedy family, that really made this a public thing and tried to eliminate, in some ways, the shame and stigma of disability. (coughs) At the federal level, we've invested billions of dollars since the 1950s and 60s. It's really been extraordinary at how differently we think about our collective responsibility. Um, the disability rights movement, some of you may remember in the 1970s, really took its cue from the black rights movement and from the feminist movement. And they had sit-ins and they had court cases and did all the same kinds of things that happened. Um, there's a picture here of Ed Roberts. So Ed Roberts um, had polio. Um, as a child, and so was quadriplegic, and so he needed to breathe. You know, this is his ventilator. Um, and 
he couldn't graduate high school because he couldn't pass the gym requirement. And his mom suggested the school that that didn't quite seem right. So he made it through. And then he tried to get into Berkeley. Um, and although he was admitted, once they found out he was quadriplegic, they said, well, no, you have no place to live. And so they suggested, well, I'm sure you can fix this, right? This is in the early 70s. And he ended up living on a hospital ward and going to classes. By the end of the time he was there, um, he had several other people living with him there as well. He started to build the independent living movement. And before Ed Roberts died, he ended up being in charge of disability in California. Um, in fact, was the, took the role of the person who said, no, you can't go to college here. And ended up being his job. Just one example of sort of the disability rights heroes. Series of legislative victories. Um, and just one example of John Hockenberry. I don't know if you guys get the takeaway on your NPR station. Um, Hockenberry is the, is the host of that. And when he, he had a, a, a car accident, so that's why he can't use his legs. Um, and when he first had that, people would say, well, you know, John, we can understand why you might want to kill yourself. That would make sense. <laughs> and he said, to hear people suggest that non-existing was better than being without the use of my legs was fairly distressing. <laughs> so if you're to sum up the disability rights perspective, it's this idea that all people, regardless of ability or disability, share the same basic rights to full participation, right? Pretty straightforward. Also, there's no honor or special tragedy in disability itself, right? So Hockenberry would say, I want to be told that I'm doing a good job with the takeaway because I'm doing a good job as a reporter. And not because, oh, isn't that amazing? He's in that wheelchair. He's still a good reporter, right? That would be inappropriate. And it's society's myths, fear, stereotypes that make things harder. And I think also in some ways it's an expression of anger, right? I told you about that long negative history. And so I don't know if you follow what's happened, and it came up with the Charlie Gard case as well, the Pillow Angel case we can talk about, that there are protests. And the people, this is one group called um, Not Dead Yet. And whenever Congress or someone does something that is perceived as anti-disability, they will be out there in force. Um, it actually helped knock back the uh, Affordable Care Act reforms um, because people with disabilities have been slammed by that, those proposals. Okay, so back to Louis. And Dad's saying, I don't want to cripple for a son, which might make sense in Haiti, right? Because disability rights and disability perspective, not really prevalent in Haitian culture, at least in, in Haiti itself. Um, for most Haitian Americans, there's a, there's a change. So is it okay for him to say no based on that? And this brings us back to what Futner showed us before. So this is back to what's the range of acceptable options? So we as a hospital are saying, this guy needs the amputation. This kid needs the amputation. Dad's saying, I'd rather not do it. And is that in the range of acceptable options? So in this particular case, what we did was we, our surgeon refused to operate. He said, if Dad's not consenting, I'm not doing it. So we brought in a second opinion. We got, there's only one pediatric ortho surgeon, so we brought in a second guy. And he actually said, look, I, I think it's possible that he may do okay. And there was another hospital that was willing to accept a transfer and try long-term antibiotics. So what do you guys think about that? Is that okay to try? Yeah, right? I think it probably is. And it's, this is not a futility case, but it's sort of a good working definition of futility or, in this case, acceptable options. If there are other reputable providers who are willing to try something and that fits the family's needs, then even if we might disagree with Dad's reasons... That doesn't seem like a necessarily a bad outcome. Um, and he did get antibiotics, and um, we lost track of him after about three months because it was a hospital a few counties north of us. 
So I'm hoping that he's okay. All right, case number four, Jorge. 10-month-old, severe microcephaly, profound cognitive impairment, cerebral palsy. It's completely permanently dependent on the mom because it's really only the mom. He has one older sibling for all activities of daily living. He's a child who, when anyone touches him, he just starts to screech. Right? Even if you try to like, stroke him or touch him, he's my primary care practice. And whenever I went near him to examine him, just, it was this horrible noise. But mom, he was fine with mom. He's not growing. He's losing weight. Mom is feeding him you know, almost all his and her waking hours, and he's still losing weight. And it's getting to the point where he needs a G2. And mom says, no, I don't want a G2. I, just, I, it's, I don't want any foreign thing in him that would change who he is. I just do not want a G2. And we tried everything. We had videos, and we had Spanish-speaking families of kids who already had G-tubes, who talked about how easy it was, and it was great, and you could still feed him. We had his clergy person talking to our clergy folks. We tried, if you can think of a way to try to help a family understand, we did it over the course of months. Still, he's losing weight. Okay? You got the picture? So the question is, what do you do? Now, is this a valid refusal? Again, it fits in, right? Mom's informed, loving, caring, competent. So, A, allow the mother to continue bottle feeding, even if it leads to premature death. B, ask for a court order to place a G2, and hope the child doesn't end up in a skilled nursing facility. In other words, once you do that, you know, there is always the fear. And we've, I think probably all of us have been involved in cases where we've overruled the parents. But then the parent may say, look, I, I can't do this. And then the child's in a skilled nursing facility or maybe medical foster care. Um, or do you ask for clinical ethics consultation? <laughs> All right, I gave you an easy one. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of those cases where it's very helpful. But why? What is it about clinical ethics committees that are so helpful? Is it because we're more ethical? No. And there's always a couple members of the committee who have some training and experience, but I don't think that's necessarily anything special either, right? What I do think is if we go back to Futner's informed step, so how do we actually, how do we make that concrete? How do we figure that out? What are the range of appropriate options? Well, with the medical stuff, like we did in Louis' case, we can see are there any other physicians, institutions, that are willing to do what the family wants. It will create that broader range. And of course, we can do that with our research too, right? We can look, what's the evidence say is the range of medical options. But then how do we decide about the community part of that? Well, I think this is where ethics, clinical ethics committees come in. So if yours is like mine, we have you know, 25 to 30 people who will show up on a dime for an urgent case within 24 hours. It's amazing. People will come and we'll hear about the case We'll try to read about what's going on. We'll hear from the family, hear from the clinicians. And <clears throat> the key to our ethics committee, and presumably to yours, is that there's a wide range of people on it, different backgrounds, different religions, different ages, some inside the hospital, some outside the hospital, different disciplines. And if you have enough diversity in your ethics committee and enough people who are willing to say, I disagree, you don't want an ethics committee where everyone agrees all the time. That's the worst possible ethics committee. Because... If you send them this case and we talk about it and all 25 or 30 people say, yes, the right thing to do is to put in the G-tube, that's a pretty strong indication that there's not a range of options. But if all 30 say, no, you've got to listen to the mom, well, then we really should listen to the mom. And what do you think happened in this case? We split, right? This happens all the time. And about two-thirds of our committee said, you've got to put in the G-tube. 
And one third said, no, no, I think that there's a possibility that the best interests of this child are actually served by being with the mom, regardless of the exact long, like the length of his life. If his life is three months versus three years, he's better off being with his mom that whole time. So what does that mean if the PU Bioethics Committee is split? <coughs> it means there's more than one right thing to do. It means that there is a range of acceptable options. And then who decides? Mom, right? So you can see how separating out the roles, right, what's informing and what's deciding, what's recommending, what's offering, the separating that out can be really helpful. Make sense? Okay. Um, so we allowed the mom to choose to continue bottle feeding, and this is a child in my primary care practice, and he died about three months later. This is almost 15 years ago that I had this case, and I still wonder if that was the right thing to do. But I know in following up with mom, because she had an older child, that she was sure that was the right thing to do. So here's the really hard question where I'm hoping you guys can help me, because this is where I'm sort of stuck. Um, if this child didn't have a severe development disability, would we have honored her refusal? Let's say this was a child with Down syndrome, right, who at some point is going to walk and talk and participate in the world. Mom said, you know, do atresia. No, I don't really want to fix that. I'm going to try to work around that. What would we have said then? I can't imagine anyone here saying, oh, yeah, yeah, just let the child die, right? So what's different here? Do, do families get sort of extra credit when they have a child with a profound disability? Yeah, but the definition of quality is different. Okay, so you think this turns on quality of life? I don't think it's. A, I don't think the family gets special credit. I think we evaluate what's best for the child in a different light. But then, what's best for the child will still be up for grabs in some ways. Are you suggesting a best interest standard? <laughs> Am I suggesting? No, I still think you. <laughs> she almost fell for it, right? <laughs> what's permissible, what's impermissible, what's recommended, what's not recommended, and you still have to try to decide those things, but I, I would in no way ever, ever say that the quality of life for those two children would be the same. And okay. that's just, I mean, I, you'll never get me to say that the quality of life is the same for those two children. All right. <laughs> that's what we're turning on, right? Like, what's the prognosis? <coughs> case you presented, there's very, because there's such a wide range, you don't really have a scientific sense of prognosis the way you do for something that's more defined, like Down syndrome. Right. There's a lot of people on a lot of research on quality and longevity. Okay. So you were saying that we're not, we're not um, dehumanizing or devaluing someone because of their degree of disability. We're saying that if we just look at their long-term prognosis, their outcome, their quality of life, that's the standard we're using to make a different decision. I mean, if you want me to be honest, I absolutely... Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, go for it. I think that uh, all of our where we live is our brain. So I do actually think that someone without any cognitive interaction with the world at all probably has that to me is not a, a life really. All right. I, that, but I would. Let, I think that obviously it was my opinion. So let's let's lead this to the the next case. It was a nice transition. Thank you. So how many of you followed the Charlie Guard case? So it was around a lot in the media, but some people did and some people didn't. Um, and I might mess up on some of the details, so feel free to correct me. But the basic idea, this is a child who's at the great, do you want to say something now? I was just going to 
Okay. A couple of hints. You, you sort of skimmed over Dan's mention of the best interest standard on the earlier case, and you said that uh, it didn't fall into the trap. Are you going to touch on the best interest standard in this case, or maybe in the discussion afterwards? Let's do it right now. <laughs> so what's the problem with the best interest standard? Well, this is what I would say, and I, and I think Lainey Ross does some nice work in, in her, her book about how you figure out what's the right thing to do for kids. What's the problem with the best interest standard is that I have four children, okay? And for one of them, the best interest for that child might be we pool all of our resources and we send that one to the best school we can. And the other three kids, yeah, sorry for you. <laughs> That's clearly in the best interest of this one. But we as family have to make a decision that actually takes a lot of things into account, right? So maybe I get a job offer somewhere else. No, I didn't. Don't worry. I get a job offer somewhere else. My wife's here. Um, I get a job offer somewhere else, and it might be great for the whole family. Maybe I'll make a lot more money, so it would be good in that way, but the school may not be as good for all my kids. We, we as families always have to make decisions that are about not best interest, but a whole bunch of competing interests. So what Lainey Ross would say is that, we owe our children a certain minimum standard, right? We've got to feed them, clothe them, send them to decent school. We owe them that, and anything above that, we're not obligated to optimize everything for every child. You just can't do it, right? You want to try to get a balance among everything. And so that's always the tricky part about the best interest standard. And also it leads you to, well, is it in your best interest to be dead or to be you know, in horrible pain? And I'm not sure how to figure that out. So what I prefer is the reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person want given these circumstances? So if you go back to Jorge, right, and you imagine, what do I say to my ethics committee? I say, imagine you were Jorge. What would you want to have happen? Would you want to get the G2? And maybe you'll live five or 10 years, but possibly not with your mom? Or would you rather live with your mom for sure, but it might only be three or five months? And imagine yourself in that position, and I assume my ethics committee members are reasonable. Um, and then I, that's how I kind of get to a reasonable person standard. And so it's a functional way of getting to it. You wanted to say something? Yeah. I, I don't know if that has anything. I mean, I think of this, <coughs> you can call it a reasonable person, but really you're trying to get at the patient's own autonomy. Right? So in the prior case, to me, the biggest problem is that the father says, I don't want a cripple for his son. Right. Well, this isn't really about you. You know, recognizing the complications that the interaction between children and parents is a very important part of everybody's life. But, um, whereas in this case, you're saying, I think exactly what you laid out. What, what, what would this patient himself want? Right. And you're still going to get stuck with horrible pain versus, you know, Right, and so it's hard to know, and it's okay for more than one person. By the way, do you notice he used the word autonomy? Is, is this the longest you've ever been in ethics talk without hearing the word autonomy? You can tell I'm not a principalist, so you, I didn't bring up autonomy. But if, yes, ma'am. One more quick comment. We have two more cases, so I want to make sure we get through. So what about the interests of the mother in the case of Yeah, I think that's what we're saying, right? That there, in any one case, there are multiple competing interests. There's also the interest of the clinician. There's also the interest of society, of the institution. And threading that through, there's no set of principles that makes it easy to decide. And that's where the sort of value, I think, of a clinical ethics committee or an institutional ethics committee comes in, where you try to get a group of people together, lay out all those interests, and figure out what's the range of acceptable options. And then once you've got that range, and it may only be one option, then the family gets to decide. 
And if they decide they don't want that one option, that's when the judge is going to I'm thinking of her quality of life. Right. And so that's actually we're going to get to that right in this next. Yes, one quick comment. I'm married to a philosopher. Oh, but that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> been, you know, practicing for decades and, and uh, he says that uh, no one seems to mention loss of potential children. So the stress on the marriage, the couple, <coughs> you know, you set up an right. ICU in their house, you don't get that second child. Yep, no, there's a whole range of things. We know that people who have children with medical complexity are much more likely to be divorced, much more likely to live in poverty, much more likely to have a whole series of things, right? A whole, a whole bunch of stuff happens. All right, so just quickly on Charlie Gard. Um, so metabolic disorder, no known treatment, universally fatal. Um, and he gets to the point where, is, from the physician's and the nurse's point of view, he has no interaction with the world at all. Some, feel, some think that he can feel pain, but it's hard to even tell that. He's on a ventilator. If you stop the ventilator, he'll die. There's no chance for recovery. The parents request ongoing ventilator care. And in fact, they request basically transfer to... Um, New York, because there is a physician there who's used this experimental, highly experimental treatment, not on this particular condition, but on a similar kind of condition. And so the family says, well, we want to go do that. And um, money is not an issue because through crowdfunding, they raise over a million pounds. So a lot of people put money into this to save Charlie. Um, one quick question for you. I really want to know. I'm not going to go through this whole list. Do you think... Charlie Gard's condition counts as a disability. I, see, I, I struggle with this. If you have absolutely no interaction with the world, is that a disability? Or is that you're in kind of a permanent coma? Right? And does it take Hockenberry and to say that he is in the same category as someone who is on a ventilator and never is going to interact with the world? Does, to me, that just stretches the idea of disability to the point where it doesn't make sense anymore. The same was true with Terry Schiavo, permanent vegetative state or minimal conscious state. And so I often wonder where that fits in. So there doesn't seem to be strong opinion. So a few people say, yes, Charlie Gard is a disability. Raise your hands if you think he does. Interesting. Anyone say, no, I don't think he does? OK, so the no's. I'm going to do the same kind of talk at a disability conference, and I think I'm going to get a different answer. We'll see. But it, it is a political issue for us in the disability world. Okay. I mean, partly you're, you're asking a binary question about a spectrum. Yeah. So and I mean, what's the end of the spectrum? Mm -hmm. You know, is there some end to it where you no longer have a disability and now you're permanently unconscious? Right. Um, <laughs> so again, if we bring in Funer's thing, this case really turns on, again, the informing part. Is there a, an option here? Um, so is going to the U.S. reasonable? Is it going to merely prolong suffering, as the physicians say? Um, is there a therapeutic misconception here? Right? So that's the idea that in an experiment, it should be equipoise and there should be no real value to one side or another of an experiment. And clearly the family here is under the therapeutic misconception. We're going because we're going to get them fixed. Right? Um, and what are the opportunity costs? As you sort of mentioned, your philosopher husband, we, we don't think enough about what are the opportunity costs. What do we lose out on doing because we're doing this for Charlie, both as a society, institution, and as a family? So this is obviously a request, but it's a high-stakes request. If a family asks for antibiotics for viral illness and you say no, right, there's not really any great stake. If we say no to ventilator care, the child's going to die. This is a really hard case. As you probably know, the way it resolved was the neurologist or the physician in New York basically said, well, actually, now that I've reviewed the record more, 
he's so far gone, there's no way that this therapy would help at all. So then at that point, the family agreed to hospice, and, and Charlie died a little bit after that. But there are a couple of things about this case that I think are particularly interesting. One is, do you know about the Convention for the Rights of the Child? So this is the treaty that was written primarily by the United States and remains unsigned by only one nation in the entire world, <laughs> the United States, for 15 years now. So it's not related to any one political administration. And most of us have thought, well, this is just silly. Sign the thing. You know, it's hard. To, there's a, I won't want to get in a big debate about this, um, but it's interesting to think about. But when this came out, do we in the U.S. feel differently about the rights to parent? I mean, most people and most ethicists in the United States have said, look, if this were my hospital, I would have transferred him to New York. Here's a reputable provider who's offering something, and families want it, and there's not an issue about payment. So why not? What's our argument against that? And there's pretty clear in the United States we feel strongly. And if you imagine what's the community standard, this family raised over a million pounds. That certainly suggests that for a pretty sizable portion of the relevant community, other parents and other people, that they thought this was worth trying. No. I don't want to sp we can come back to Charlie in a minute, but I want to get to our last case, which is the Pillow Angel, which is kind of the Charlie Guard case of 10 years ago. For those of you who were around thinking about ethics in those days, this was a huge case. It was in the media. This was my 15 minutes of fame um, because I wrote the editorial about it with Chris Huettner. And the case was a seven-year-old with a profound cognitive physical disability. She depends on her family for all activities of daily living. And the family requested high-dose estrogen for their daughter. And the idea is if we give high-dose estrogen, her bones will fuse. And instead of being 5'6 and 120 or 30 pounds, she'll be more like 4'1 and 60 pounds in her final adult size. <clears throat> and their argument was that this is clearly in the best interest, that's what they said, of this child, as it would allow her to more easily participate in what's going on. And this was um, at Seattle Children's Hospital that this case came along. And, um, the, you know, the father would say she loves to be in the bathroom while I'm shaving and singing opera. And she just gets so delighted with that. And we love to go as a family to the beach. And once she's bigger, it's going to be hard to do these things that we know she loves. And we're going to get older as parents, and we want to be able to take care of her forever. We don't want to have to depend on others. So if she's smaller, she gets to be part of our family and much more involved. And so that's why we want you to do this. Yeah, I heard a couple of you go. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Well, at least the, this is this a request or refusal? At least the parents Quest. are thinking of positive things they want to accomplish for, for Parents are thinking positive things. What did a lot of the people who thought this was a crazy idea say? These parents, they just they're all they care about is themselves. And they want to infantilize this child. What are the side effects? Um, so this does get complicated, right? And this is a lot of what our editorial said, is that this is an experiment. We really don't know. There are pretty significant side effects of high-dose estrogen, which I, don't, I didn't want to prejudice you, but they took care of by removing her uterus. So by doing hysterectomy, you get rid of most of those side effects. But the estrogen therapy was initially designed for tall girls. Don't say that yet. You're giving it away. <laughs> so is this an appropriate request? What do you guys think? And again, I come back to the same thing. Does a loving, caring family that's invested in their child, do they kind of get extra credit? Do we give them more leeway? I'll step back for one second and give you a case of a child I had. Um, from a resident all the way through my faculty practice for 26 years, I took care of this 
young boy, um, Kenny, who had trisomy 13. He lived to be 26 years old. Um, and his mom is from Jamaica, and she was wonderful. And she did all kinds of stuff. She, when he'd get these boils, and she'd say, Dr. Brostad, put some black root on it, and it's fine. I'd say, great, you keep doing that. And he would get recurrent UTIs, right? And mom would call me up and say, is urine smelling again? So for him to come in, right, would mean you have to get the STS special transport, get his wheelchair, he'd come in, it would take an entire day, his dad would bring him, it's a day of work. In order for me to get the, I would just say, I'm calling a prescription for you. When he saw the urologist, they said, oh, you need to cath him four times a day. That will prevent long-term kidney damage. Mom said, you know, when I do that, he hates that. I don't want to do that. I said, don't do it. He lived to be 26 years old. That's amazing for trisomy 13. Did I give his mom extra credit? Absolutely. This is stuff I would never do with a kid who didn't have a profound disability. And I'm guessing all of these clinicians would have done the same thing. I would call it context, not extra credit. All right, call it context. I'll change the wording of the slide for next time. Language matters. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the emphasis. Especially the emphasis. Um, but suppose this girl, the pillow angel, didn't have a profound disability. Would it be okay then? Depends on what? What she's suffering from. Nothing. Nothing. She's not suffering from nothing. She's just too tall. I don't want her to be so tall. What does she want? She's seven. So, as, as you heard from Kathy, in the 1950s, girls who were too tall could never find a marriage partner. And so, the use of high-dose estrogen to make sure girls didn't grow too tall is fairly common in some parts of the United States. What do you think of that? We, we would never do anything like that, right? What do we do? How many boys do you have in your practice where people say, you know, tall boys are more likely to be president. They have higher salaries. I really want that growth hormone thing. I had a family just last week. Their adult predicted height of their boy was 5'9", which is the average height of men in the United States. And mom said, yeah, but his dad, is, he, he was always felt like he was so short. We really want to check out that growth hormone thing. And you and I both know that there are a lot of kids getting growth hormone who do not have true growth hormone deficiency. It's amazing how historically, when you look back, how dare they do that to those girls. And my guess is 30 years from now, 50 years from now, people say, what were they doing getting all those boys shots of growth hormone to make them taller? Who, who pays? I mean, we can't get growth hormone for kids who we clearly have evidence. So who pays for growth hormone for kids who don't have... That's a good question. Pay. Come who back in general? Come back at noon, and we're going to talk will, about policy <laughs> and how we pay for things. Because it's now... Okay, take-home points. I would say apply the shared making decision following the Fruitner framework in everyday clinical practice, right? We started with otitis media. Um, I think, and I'm just making this up, 10% of whatever, your time, that you spend, okay, you're going to read about cardiology, you're going to read about other things, but there is a lot of research on communication. And so choosing the right words, thank you, makes sense. Um, we talked about the role of the clinical 
Bioethics Committee in determining the range of reasonable responsibilities. And of course, this is Bob Marley's Buffalo Soldier. <laughs> All right. Um, here are my references. Thank you very much. It's 9 o'clock. Thank <laughs> you.